Um, and isn't it amazing how um, you stand up and all of a sudden your en the energy level comes back up for you, right? Like the blood begins to move, you, you uh, think more clearly, you have a little bit of an energetic conversation. Um, there's something important about the way that we physically engage. Uh, because it's so easy to be at church and just think, well, my heart and my head, you know, if I'm lucky, my heart's engaged. If I'm super lucky, my head gets engaged. But um, our faith is a full-bodied experience as well. And I know you know all know that. Um, and that's why it's natural for us to talk about things like how could we serve one another in practical ways by delivering food or um, to follow up with what Barbara was saying about giving. Because faith isn't merely just a series of intellectual affirmations about a, a, a truth statement. Um, it's not merely a sense of passion or intensity emotionally. Um, it's an invitation for all of who we are, body, mind, heart, and soul, to engage together in glorifying and declaring who Jesus is, to use your vision statement, right? To know God, to grow together, and then to declare who he is um, in word and deed and power. And over the last few weeks, you've actually been exploring what that looks like, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because how easy it would have been for God just to remain word, declaring some truth into your mind, some experience in your heart. But thanks be to God, he came in both, with both grace and truth, dwelled among us so that we could see what God was like in the way that Jesus lived. And then so the few weeks before Easter, as you finished up Lent, my understanding is you looked at how Jesus manifested himself, how he called the disciples to himself, how he demonstrated that there was going to be this new wine that came in the miracle at Cana. A new thing was happening where creation was being renewed, where an entire faith was being restored. And then preeminently, uh, at Good Friday and at Easter Sunday, as a church, like every church around the world, we walked again and remembered. It's not just some facts about who Jesus was that matters to us, but his physical death had profound implications for who we are spiritually. His physical resurrection is critical to us because by that God proved and demonstrated this man died, but he was innocent. This man was more than a man. He was my son. This man who died in your place and on your behalf, I vindicated. He is the Lord. And we were invited to follow him. Over the last few weeks, you've had a chance to walk through all of that. Jesus' incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection. In part because it's, it's necessary for us, body, mind, heart, and soul, to engage with who Jesus is. What's striking, I think, because I trust that for you all, as it was for me this past few weeks, um, it renews my faith, but it clearly doesn't renew the faith of everyone. Many people finished Holy Week and still said, I'm still not convinced. I still don't know what to do. I wonder, even as you were going through Holy Week, because I was going through Holy Week, what roadblocks came up that prevented us from fully engaging, fully giving ourselves, fully following who Jesus is. It's interesting, in the section right below the scripture reading that we had, or right above the uh, scripture reading we had today, Jesus has just cleared the temple, and the people in Jerusalem are following him, and what it says in uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, is while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous sign he was doing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about men, for he knew what was in a man. 
that there was something, even though people were responding to Jesus, he knew they couldn't be trusted yet. He couldn't give himself fully to them yet. Because even though they were responding to his miracles and to his teaching, they didn't quite understand who he was. And he knew enough about their hearts to know that this was true. And as an illustration of that, you get the story of Nicodemus. Now, it's a fascinating story. Nicodemus um, has roadblocks, like many of us, in trying to follow Jesus. It says at the beginning of uh, chapter 3, now, he was a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Um, he was learned, he was wise, he was in power. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, um, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these things um, if God were not with him. And it's this kind of ambivalent sort of introduction, isn't it? I, a member of the ruling party, with all of the knowledge and ability to assess whether you're right or not, I've come to you, Jesus, to tell you we've decided that you really must know something about what you talk about. Right? It sounds like he's coming pretty humbly, but actually when you think about his position, he's coming up to this reasonably unschooled Jewish itinerant preacher saying, we know, and this is how you know that you are, that you actually may be right about this. And then Jesus, um, in that kind of odd, sort of subversive way that he has, says, well, you know, um, that's very nice, Nicodemus. Let me tell you a truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God. No one's going to see God's reign and rule. No one's going to see the new age that God intends to break into this world to demonstrate that he's still in charge unless he's born again. And this throws Nicodemus for a loop, right? Because Nicodemus probably expects Jesus to go, oh, finally, the Jewish establishment finally recognizes me, right? Thank you for knowing that what I'm saying is true. Oh, now that you all can acknowledge it, we can move forward. Jesus actually just takes what he says and says, that's nice, the end goal is you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is justifiably confused. Um, I'm kind of old. You're kind of old. Our mothers aren't even interested in having us at home right now. I don't understand how I'm going to be born again. How do you get in the mind? I mean, right? What does that mean? And Jesus says, look, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God. Right? Nobody can enter the place where God reigns and God rules, can be part of God's reign and God's rule, unless he's born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised by this, right? The Spirit is uncontrollable and powerful. Now, what Jesus is saying in the Nicodemus story seems to be, um, you have to be born of water and of the Spirit. And Nicodemus is really struggling with this, because he's taking it at a purely literal level, right? I, I was already born once impossible to go back. What, what do you mean born again? Jesus is actually referencing um, a passage in Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, verses 25 and 27. I'm sure you're all familiar with it um, because it, it's quoted pretty frequently. In, um, in Ezekiel 36, uh, 25 through 27, God is speaking to the people in exile who feel distant from God who feel distant from God's home, I mean, God's city of Jerusalem, right? They're scattered, they're dispersed, they're of no account. And then God says to them, for I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, I will bring you back into your own land. To which any good exile will be like, oh, finally. Our humiliation and our shame is over. Then he says, 
I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees um, and be careful to keep my laws. That this promise that God starts out with like, look, you're all dispersed, you're all in exile. I'm going to do this new thing. I'm going to wash you with water and my spirit. And though you struggle to keep my law, I'm going to birth within your heart the ability, the desire, the longing to actually live out my law. I'm going to renew you and give you a new life, a new way of living that will prevent us from getting into this impossible situation where I rescue you and you rebel and I judge you. I rescue you, you rebel and I judge you. New life is going to be promised to you. And so Jesus is actually saying, look, If you want to live into the place where God reigns and God rules, if you want to manifest that and be a part of that, then you need to experience what Ezekiel was talking about. You need to be born through the water and through the Spirit so that you have a new heart within you, that you're redeemed, not just from political exile, but from the spiritual exile that you've always experienced. And what Nicodemus, how Nicodemus responds to this, how can this be? Now, there are two ways of reading the how can this be part. One would be, I think, like Mary did when Gabriel announces that you're going to be pregnant. How can this be? I'm a virgin. And her next response is, may it be to you, may it be to me as you have said. I'm the Lord's handmaiden, right? It's a posture of faith. I don't understand. Can you explain it to me because I receive it? And another way of saying it is, what does that mean? How could that possibly be true? And I think it's the second Because of the way Jesus responds to Nicodemus. You were Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. Jesus doesn't appear to think that Nicodemus is open. He seems to think Nicodemus is resisting him. Then he's being a little snide, I think. Now, I may be projecting because I'm a little snide and sarcastic at times. And so, but Nicodemus comes to Jesus, right? We've decided that you must be from God. And Jesus responds, we testify to the things that we see and know, right? He, I think it's that why he's speaking in the kind of weird first person plural there. Um, he's questioning Jesus' authority. And what's interesting to me, right? That's, the, that's kind of the setup for the scripture passage we're actually looking at. Nicodemus has so many roadblocks to figure out who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. And Jesus begins to outline then in the passage that we're looking at um, the problems that Nicodemus is facing. Why can't he understand and why can't he, um, at this stage of his life, engage in the kingdom of God? Because he won't accept the authority of Jesus. He won't accept the mission of Jesus. And I think he won't accept the verdict of Jesus that Jesus brings. What does it mean that he won't accept the authority of Jesus? Jesus says, look, how can you not understand this? You're one of the teachers of the law, and when I quote the Old Testament to you, you have to be born of water and the Spirit, Ezekiel 36. You come to me, how could this be possible? And Jesus says, look, I speak of what I know, and I can testify to what I've seen, but you still won't believe. I've spoken to you of earthly, concrete, material things, and I think Peter and Julian did a fantastic job of explaining that. And you don't believe, how then will you believe if I speak of more abstract, larger things about heaven? If you can't understand something as simple as birth, and a new birth that you'd experience here in the present reality you have, how could you possibly understand what it's going to look like when God changes everything? 
No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him has eternal life. What's interesting is Jesus doesn't say, well, look, let's do a Bible study together. Let me philosophically argue this out with you. Let me lead you through an experiential learning exercise to help you understand this. What he basically does is Jesus says, look at me, and if you knew me, you'd make, this would make sense to you. I tell you what I personally have seen and I know. Nobody's gone up to heaven to be able to explain this to you, so only one who comes down from heaven can explain this to you. The Son of Man. And then he quotes um, Numbers 21 uh, and talks about the snake, right? And he says, just as um, Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus makes himself the issue. What he knows, who he is, what he's about, and what he's going to accomplish. Jesus speaks as one who's come from heaven. Unlike everybody else in the world, right? he's speaking of his incarnation. He talks about himself as the son of man, right? Which was the way he talked about himself throughout all of his earthly ministry. Both hearkening back to the language at the end of Daniel when the one who is the son of man who looks like a human being stands at the right hand of the throne of God and judges the nations, but he talks about himself in that way all the time as he's doing his miracles, as he's preaching, as he's making himself known. As the word becomes flesh, he talks about himself as the son of man. And he talks about himself as the one who will be lifted up on a pole, like that snake back in our history. But that term lifted up gets used in so many ways in Scripture, and it always seems to refer to Jesus being nailed on the cross, but also glorified in that moment. Because as he dies in our place and on our behalf, he reveals the goodness of God in forgiving our sin, the holiness of God in judging our sin, the wisdom of God in actually doing it in such a way that humanity is spared, and that God himself bears the burden and bears the judgment due us. Jesus says, if you want to understand what God is about, if you want to participate in new life, eternal life, life in the age where God demonstrates his reign and rule, then look to me. Look to me, and once you understand who I am, you'll understand how the Old Testament explains this. Look to me, and you'll understand what God is doing right now. Look to me, and if you see who I am and what I'm doing, what I was about, you'll know where God is going to go and what it looks like to submit yourself to his reign and rule and how it manifests in the world. In the end, we look to Jesus because he is the only one who can reveal what God is like because in Jesus, God made himself manifest in the flesh. And so when I meet with college students and they say, what is God like? I can talk to them abstractly about first principles, the unmoved mover. The best way to talk about what God is like is say, well, let's look at who Jesus is. And so my favorite way of gathering people evangelistically is actually do a Bible study with them and start with one of the Gospels. Do you want to know what God is like? God is like the man who, when he sees somebody hurting, reaches out and heals him. God is like the kind of person when nature is going crazy and you think your life is threatened, God says, the brokenness of creation is going to stop, and I'm going to bring calm to the storm. God is the kind of God who, when he sees people celebrating, increases their celebration, because when they run out of wine, he makes even better wine for them. And he delights in the fact when people are celebrating the goodness of creation by uh, being married. God is the kind of God, wherever he shows up, there seems to be abundance. So that when people are hungry, he takes just a few loaves and a few fish, and he breaks it, and all of a sudden, not only are we all full, there's leftovers. Enough to feed far more than were really there. 
When God is the kind of God, when he sees somebody hurting spiritually, feeling incredibly distant to him, he turns to somebody like a woman and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Or, won't anyone condemn you? Then I'm not going to condemn you either, but don't sin anymore. What kind of God do we have? We have the kind of God that when he realizes the brokenness of humanity, he chooses not to distance himself from it, but he experiences every temptation that we experience, suffers the very same things that we suffer, and to leave us with no doubt that he loves us, allows our political and religious and personal biases to come into play to nail him to a cross, so that when we stand in front of the cross, as that old great spiritual says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? We said, we have to answer, yes, I was. And I had a nail and a hammer, and I'd have driven it through his hands myself if I'd been given the opportunity. That's what God is like. That's why Jesus says, look at me. Do you want to understand what God's going to do? Then look at me in my incarnation, in my ministry on an earth, and how I died. If you want to understand who Je- what Jesus is about and what God is doing, look at Jesus. That's why I think the idea of mission groups for your church is so fantastic. Because in the end, part of what you're being invited to do is to say to the people around you here in northern Westchester and Putnam County, come look at who Jesus is. And if you see how I am, you get a glimpse of what Jesus is like because I am a Christian, a little Christ in your midst, but that we point them and show them who Jesus is because that's how they're going to understand who God is. Let me do then a little bit of meddling since I have a moment and I have the microphone. Um, I know Dick made this invitation, would you think about doing a missions group? Some of you thought, oh, I don't know what I should do. It's like, you know, like, am I, what? Let me suggest one way to start thinking about your mission group is what do you already love doing? What do you normally do with your free time that you enjoy doing that you can invite others to do with you? Could it be that that might be the way to start a mission group? Do you like to hike? I notice people who like to hike like to bring other people to hike. I don't know why. I keep saying no, but they keep inviting me. <laughs> there are a lot of people who hike in the area. What happens if you form a mission group of people who love hiking who can invite non-Christian friends to go hiking with them? So that you're beginning to spend time together in natural ways. We're not, I suspect Dick's not saying add one more thing to your schedule. He's inviting you, could the very things that you already love doing be a way of gathering together and doing it with people who don't yet know Jesus so that they see what Jesus is like by seeing who you are like. It may be around food that you enjoy eating. I mean, I think personally it would be fantastic to do a mission group around an eating club. (laughs) Hitting fantastic restaurants, talking about food and life. Um, What could you do that you already normally do? Who are the people you hang out with already in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces? Um, Because, right, Part of what Jesus keeps doing with Nicodemus is saying, it's a lot more concrete than you think. What's interesting also is that beyond not being able to accept the authority of Jesus, Nicodemus couldn't accept the mission of Jesus. Jesus offers Nicodemus two illustrations about how eternal life will come about, and they all involve something that he's going to do. Now, it's important to note when Jesus uses the term eternal life, he's not saying life that just never ends. He's not really talking about, you know... um, being an elf in the Lord of the Rings where you just think, okay, 4,000 years, another oh, eternity to go. Um, eternal life means life in the age to come. And for a Jew hearing that at the time, what he's hearing is when God finally breaks the power of Rome, when God finally restores the people of Israel 
to the kingdom of Israel, and the temple is truly the place where the entire world comes to worship and acknowledge that Yahweh is the Lord, when God restores shalom to the world, where every tear gets wiped away, where peace breaks forth, where all of the brokenness of nature suddenly bursts forth in joy, pleasure, and harmony, when Genesis 1 and 2 become an accurate description of what's going on today, in that age, how will I get life in that age? How can I join in with that? And the Jews at the time thought it would be a massive breakthrough and everything would change. And what we're finding out because of who Jesus is, is that God was doing it very slowly through the person of Jesus and I think through the mission of the church to begin to bring us up to a point where all of a sudden God will go, bam, let's start all over. All, I'm going to make all things new right now. Jesus offers Nicodemus two illustrations of how you have life in that age when God bring, makes all things new, the new creation. And he says it's going to be through a birth of water in the spirit when I completely change your heart and internally and the small sphere of power that you have and influence you have, you begin to manifest what it looks like when God is restoring harmony to creation in the new life that you have, as well as this parallel situation in Numbers 21, where if you remember in Numbers 21, um, the people of Israel had been murmuring, complaining, kvetching, doing what we all do, and God says, okay, I can't take this anymore. And he sends out what they call these fiery serpents, right? These poisonous serpents, and they begin to die. And he, Moses pleads, and he, God says, look, if you, if you make this, um, I need them to turn to me. So make a bronze snake. Lift it up in a pole, and the people who really want to trust me for their future and stop their complaining and whining, if they'll look up, I'll heal them. But if they just want to look at themselves, their miserable condition, how much in pain they are, and refuse to look, refuse to accept the gift I'm going to offer, then they're going to suffer. And so Moses does, and miraculously, everybody who finally goes, okay, God said if I look, I'm going to be healed. I'm just going to trust him with it. And they look, they're healed, and those who don't die. And Jesus says, it's just going to be like that again. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up, and if you look up at him in belief that God intends to heal, that God intends to extend his grace to end your suffering and end the judgment that you've been inflicted with, you will live, and you'll live into the age to come. Isn't it interesting? How will God bring about this change of heart, removing our heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh, allowing our spirit to respond to his movement? It's by looking at Jesus as he's lifted up on the cross. And if you choose to believe that God intends to heal you by that, right? if you actually accept the gift that he offers, and he said, I'm going to make all things new for you, and as I make all things new in you, I'm going to make all things new around you. And the community that you experience together will be the down payment, is the language Paul tends to use, of the greater thing that God intends to do in the future. The very quality of life that you'll experience together as a community will prove to people that I'm the Lord. Jesus identifies himself as the precondition for renewal. He's central in our salvation. And John thinks about this imagery of the snake being lifted up, and that's why he, um, in reflection, offers us the verse that right, almost everybody who is in a Christianized society knows, John 3.16. Why does God do this? Because he so loves the entire world. Every single lost person in it. He doesn't hate them. He doesn't despise them. He doesn't think poorly of them. He loves them. And so he offers himself in the person of Jesus. That whoever would choose to believe and receive what Jesus has to offer will inherit life in the world to come. 
when the beauty of Eden becomes lived out in the countryside and suburbs and cities of our world when God makes all things new. This is how God demonstrates his love. Um, what's interesting is, I think, verse 17. Um, in verse 17, um, I think it's John reflecting at this point, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That unlike the servant, sorry, the serpent, which had to exist because the people were writhing in judgment, um, Jesus didn't come with the primary purpose to judge the world. He came to save it. The irony, of course, is that in the midst of trying to save the world, everybody understands what judgment is really like. <laughs> Becky Pivert tells a story um, in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, which is a fantastic book on evangelism, but she was doing a campus mission in Stanford University, and she got to know this woman named Lois, and she invited Lois to come to join a Bible study about the life of Jesus that she was doing later that evening. And Lois what, didn't seem that interested, but as soon as Becky said, look, we'll read it just as seriously as you read um, the Communist Manifesto in class. Give Jesus as much of a chance as you would give Marx. Lois thought, okay, that'd be great. Well, as she's prepping for the Bible study, Becky discovers that Lois is actually living with her boyfriend off campus. And much to her horror, as they're starting the Bible study, Lois walks in and brings her boyfriend. Now, this wouldn't be terrible, right? Most of us would think, evangelistic success. The non-Christians are bringing more non-Christians. I'm winning. But Becky had planned to teach the passage out of John 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, who also seemed to be living with a man who wasn't her husband at the time. And Becky just thought, oh, this is terrible, right? She's going to totally think I set this up for her, and I didn't. It was God! <coughs> so she says, with a step of faith, I frankly tried to think of how to avoid the crunch of this passage though I was sure God had gotten me into this mess. And she said, Lois and Phil were seated close to my left, and so thinking it would be better if Lois didn't read the passage, um, I called on Sally, who was immediately to my right, figuring we'll never get to Lois by the time you finish with John 4, figuring if everybody does a, pa a paragraph, we'll end somewhere in the middle. Um, to my dismay, a girl three seats away from Lois started to read. I didn't realize later th until later that it was Sally's twin sister who happened to be sitting next to me. <laughs> so Lois gets to the part of the passage where it says, Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for the man you are living with is not your husband. It was her first experience reading scripture, and her eyes grew as big as saucers, and I hid behind my Bible. <laughs> I must say, she said, this is a bit more relevant than I expected. <laughs> but Becky writes, as um, Lois saw with what sensitivity and perception Jesus interacted with a lonely woman, her face showed how moved she was. The next day, Lois and Becky talked again. Is there any reason you couldn't become a Christian? Becky asked. No, she said. Well, I can think of one, Becky said. What will you do about Phil, your boyfriend? And then they began a conversation about how becoming a Christian isn't merely fire insurance, escape from hell. It's a relationship that affects every aspect of our lives, our values, our lifestyle, our sexuality. And as they talked, it became clear that God had been pursuing her for a very long time. Um, Becky writes, there were tears and struggles followed by an utterly sincere prayer asking for Christ to become her Lord. And she said, Becky, as a young Christian, I've got problems. I have to tell Phil and move out, and I have no place to go. I mean, at Stanford, people are living in trailers right now. Um, there's no dorm rooms. I'll have to pay rent in two places. I don't know what to do. And so they prayed together, and she left, and Becky thought, you know, for such a young Christian, 
um, she was really understanding what it meant to bear your cross and the cost of it. After dinner, the students who attended the Bible study stopped in the dining hall, and they said they were fascinated by this Bible study on Jesus. And they heard this noise, and they turned around, and they saw Lois slowly walking down the corridor, carrying several suitcases and smiling, even as she was basically crying, with tears streaming down her face. Um, and uh, people are like, why did you move out on Phil? And why have you left ho- your home? And she said, I haven't left home. I finally found my home. You see, today I became a Christian. That one decision, Becky Pippet writes, had far-reaching effects. That same night, three girls on the floor decided to get right with Jesus. Another girl who had assumed she was a Christian realized she wanted no part of it if it demanded such commitment, and she walked away from the faith. The next day, Lois was told she could move into a dorm room, which was nearly impossible at the time, and lo and behold, she discovered her new mate was a dynamic young Christian who began to disciple her. Three months later, Phil became a Christian, and he grew rapidly, and um, at first he said, I was so angry when you moved out. But he told her later, um, after he converted, he said, thank you, Lois, for loving God enough to put him first instead of me. Your obedience shaped my eternal destiny. See, it's interesting, though, right? Even as Lois was hearing the good news of Jesus loves you, he'll show mercy to you, he'll, he'll treat you with respect and dignity. It was very clear to her, even as she was hearing the good news, that it said in contrast what Jesus was offering and what she actually had. So that even though Jesus didn't come to declare judgment, Lois understood the, the judgment that was being described on her current lifestyle. And even as Lois made steps of faith, so that people began to see the power of new life, it forced people to recognize where they actually already were. Three women thought, exactly, that's what I've wanted. I've wanted that for a long time. I'm going to take it now. And one woman, sadly enough, saw what it was, realized she thought she was a Christian, but really didn't want to have anything to do with it. Did she hear Jesus' words of condemnation? No, but when people move into the light, it brings all of the darkness out, and people have to make a choice whether to remain in the darkness or to continue to pursue the light. And that's what Jesus is getting at at the bottom end of this passage. I didn't come to judge the world, but my very presence as the light of the world demonstrates where darkness is and demonstrates where light is. And you have to decide what you're going to do about it. Those who are evil, Jesus seems to be saying, hew to the dark and hide their deeds, which are evil, because they want to escape notice. They want to escape the conviction that comes from being in Jesus' presence. They choose to embrace their shame and they hide. Those who live by the truth, Jesus says, come into the light. But they come into the light for a very different reason than those who are avoiding the light by moving into the dark. They're not coming to reveal their good deeds to show what great people they were. Jesus has come. Now I can reveal what a fantastic individual I am. Because I'm nicer than everyone. I'm humbler than everyone, at least until this moment. Right? Um, I've kept all the laws. Instead, what the passage points out, they come into the light so that it may be plainly seen um, that the good things that have happened have been done through God are the last lines of the passage. They come into the light not as a way of asserting their goodness, but as a way of expressing the grace that God has given them. He's made it all possible. And what Jesus seems to be saying about Nicodemus is, so make a choice. Are you going to be in the light or in the dark? Um... Because in the end, what this part of the passage seems to be saying is that Jesus will come as the judge, 
But in his earthly ministry, I think in the ways that we choose to present him, our goal is not to judge people or to announce condemnation, but to present truth so beautifully, so powerfully, and so clearly that where they already are becomes clear to them. Right? I think that's some of the power of poetry and art sometimes. Truth is demonstrated so beautifully and so powerfully, um, you understand where you are in the universe. It was at 12.21 a.m. on a morning in November 1979. Um, a doctor pronounced Jesse Walter Bishop dead in the gas chambers of the Nevada State Prison. Bishop was a career criminal who committed his first armed robbery at the age of 15 and spent 22 of his last 27 years behind bars. He renounced all efforts to stay his execution for a murder he had committed in 1977. At that time, he even waived his right to a jury trial, immediately pleading guilty. He could have been given an appeal of his case even minutes before entering the gas chamber, but he said no with these words. This is just one more step down the road I've been heading to all my life. Let's go. People choose the darkness as an expression of the choices they've already made. That's why C.S. Lewis points out the doors to hell are locked from the inside. After a lifetime of saying to God, I want to have nothing to do with you, finally God says to them what they've always wanted, your will be done. And he allows them to lock the door on the inside, to live in darkness. And that's why I think the images about hell are often of darkness. And the idea of flames and pain are when you finally realize what you've wanted all your life is separation from God and you're given it, the agony is great. That's why as a church, in your scattered church groups and what I hope you'll experience in your missions groups, um, confession and repentance, fellowship and community become essential for us because they train us step by step to seek the light, to bring those things that are hidden in darkness into the light in front of other people who can shine the light of Christ's love and forgiveness into our lives because we can't do it alone. How do we know that Nicodemus was struggling with these things? Because it starts out when you first are introduced to Nicodemus, he came to Jesus at night in the darkness. And Jesus leads him through this entire conversation. Nicodemus, you need to experience new life through me. You need to accept the fact that my mission is to save and to seek the lost. And it's going to point out that people live in the darkness, but you have a choice to come out into the light. The great news about Nicodemus that I trust you saw as you study the resurrection passages and the crucifixion passages of John just a few weeks ago, is that there's a man named Nicodemus, part of the ruling council of Jews, who, when Jesus' body is taken down from the cross, contributes the myrrh and the aloe to allow his body to be embalmed, who participates with the disciples in caring for the body of his crucified Lord. Somewhere, Nicodemus moves into the light and begins to pursue Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, that's the invitation for us today, isn't it? There are a lot of reasons to choose darkness. It's safe. Nobody knows. But in the end, the invitation is made. Come into the light to reveal what God is already doing, to embrace Jesus as light of the world. You can't avoid him. He's inescapable. It's his authority and through who he is that we know what God is doing. It's his mission to come and to seek and save those who are lost. And every Sunday, like this Sunday, he makes an invitation to us, like he intends to make through the people that I hope you'll meet through your mission groups.
come, embrace me, find me, experience new life through me, and begin to manifest in word, deed, and power the new life that is to come. Let me pray for us. Well, Jesus, I don't know how best to pray, but um, I'll pray what Dick has already prayed uh, for the people here. Would you move through them? Would your Holy Spirit be at work, bringing new life to help, so that we become a people who manifest your glory, your power, your love, and your truth? And then I pray, um, as I suspect the leader of church is praying, Lord, would you call many of the folk here to be involved in or to lead mission groups? Um, not just so that another program is launched, but because... Uh, that we would manifest to those who do not yet know the good news of Jesus Christ, doing the things that we love with people that we enjoy in ways which are natural and free. And then in conversation after conversation, interaction after interaction, would truth be spoken so beautifully and so powerfully that people realize that they may be in darkness and are given an opportunity to move into the light so that we can declare what you have done through us. To you be the good news, the glory forever. Amen.